Hello, and welcome to another Mad Philosopher podcast episode. Today is April 22nd, 2018. The price of Bitcoin is currently one Bitcoin to 8,892 United States dollars. This is another one of the commissioned podcast episodes. A uh, friend of mine on the internet has graciously offered a small sum of cryptocurrency in exchange for a quick overview of some very important philosophical topics which impact the philosophy of liberty quite heavily, despite being spoken about a little less frequently than, say, property norms or cultural trends or genetic determinism or any of the other issues that we talk about so often in the Austro-Libertarian circle. So today we're discussing epistemology, by and large. Epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. To someone unfamiliar with the history of philosophical enterprise, the idea of discussing how we know what we know might seem a little bit foreign. Of course, I know what I know because I know it. I know what I know because I've experienced the things that have told me to know the things that I know. I know what I know because I've been told things, I've read things, I've seen things, I've experienced things, and I've done things. However, the issue is a little bit more nuanced than that. So today, my goal is to give a very quick overview of epistemology, kind of writ large, again, the study of how we know what we know, with a specific end in mind. That end, of course, will be the next episode of the podcast, but what I'm hoping next episode to discuss then is objectivism from the school of you know Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon and their ilk as well as exploring the similarities and differences between the objectivists and the Kantians. As we move on, you will become more familiar with these terms. Additionally, I hope to kind of outline a little bit of my own personal thoughts on how exactly our epistemological mechanisms work within our mind, just to kind of round everything out and to, of course, put my own personal flair on things. So without further ado, a brief bit of history. I'm going to start our philosophical history where most philosophical histories start, which would be ancient Greece, pre-Christian Greece to be specific, and where most people would begin with Plato. I'm going to choose to skip Socrates and Plato and jump straight to Aristotle because he's most relevant to the punchline of our discussion. Aristotle was born in about 384 BC in Greece. He was a student of Plato, who in turn was a student of Socrates. Aristotle, by and large, disagreed with Plato on a great many things. Most of Aristotle's work was pointing out all of the errors that Plato made and went and going ahead and kind of formulating his own set of counterfactuals to Plato's worldview, where Plato believed in these mathematical forms that existed outside of the world that we could perceive and gave rise to all of the things that we could see in the universe, where there's an ideal form of a tree and the ideal form of a rock and the ideal form of the human person, and we all the trees and the rocks and the people try to mimic those divine forms, Aristotle said, no, the form is the shape that an object takes. The form is the thing that the object does, as opposed to something that is trying to emulate out in the world of mathematical perfection. 
Now, that's not entirely relevant to this discussion, but it is an important point to drive at because where Plato's going to say that an individual has to be of a certain disposition and skill set and ability set to be able to use their mind and primarily using nothing other than reason itself to achieve knowledge of these perfect forms that then make sense of all of the lesser forms that we can see in the real world. Aristotle's going to call BS on that whole project and say, you know what you know because you experience it. You know what you know because you touch it and taste it and feel it. Aristotle was uh, very big in the realm of epistemology in that he took apart a lot of the Platonic and Heraclitean notions that people had, a lot of the Stoic arguments that were being made about his time, and decided instead to focus on, well, if you see an animal... You then know about the animal because the image is in your mind. He actually went so far as to say that the animal imprints itself on your mind and that there's a copy of the animal that lives in your mind. It gets a little bit complicated. The big takeaway, despite all the complication that's involved therein, is simply that Aristotle allows for a direct encounter with a known object. If I touch something and taste it and smell it, I can create a facsimile of it in my mind that is assumed to be reliable. There's not a whole lot of like, well, what happens if your senses are lying to you and such arguments as that. That's something that comes into the picture much, much later down the road in the late 1500s and early 1600s uh, AD. So this is more than a thousand years later, almost 2000 years later. You have uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Rene Descartes, who is somewhat famous in the philosophical world and even to normies uh, due to his cogito. I think therefore I am cogito ergo sum. Now there's a lot of different jokes that play on that. And because I've covered these sorts of jokes before, I'm not really going to get into it right now. The important takeaway for, for Descartes though, is that he brought the scholastic process project from something that was going on for centuries before himself and really gave it its big heyday. What is scholasticism, you might say? Scholasticism was a Middle Ages philosophical exercise whereby one would effectively doubt anything that could not be proven to be necessary or to proven to be necessarily so. So there's a lot of focus on mathematics, a lot of focus on syllogisms and very articulate and explicit logical reasoning. If this, then that, this, therefore that, that type of argumentation. So if one could not necessarily prove the existence of something, one couldn't use that thing in his argument at a later time. It's a very dry and very procedural analytic time in philosophy. In earlier centuries as well, Aristotle found his resurgence in the realm of Western philosophy. For quite some time, his works were lost to the Western world and were only introduced mere centuries before Descartes came on the scene. One of the most famous scholars in the Aristotelian tradition then would actually be Thomas Aquinas, who took Aristotle's pagan works and did his absolute best to manipulate them into supporting the Catholic traditions and, at the same time, taking his Catholic traditions and attempting to manipulate them into supporting Aristotelian arguments. There's a fair amount of discussion that can be had as to how successful he was in unveiling truths or compatibility between Aristotle and the church. However, 
it cannot be denied that he had a huge impact on philosophy. This impact extended all the way to Descartes. Descartes, ostensibly, was licensed by the church to engage in a work called the Meditations on First Philosophy, whereby he would use the tools of the scholastics and use the almost atheistic doubt of the scholastics. Again, if you can't prove the existence of God, then you can't use him in your arguments and such cases as those. And you could and he was going to use those tools in order to effectively prove the church right. He was going to prove the existence of God, and by proving the existence of God, he could then import all of the revelations that God gave you. So you get the Bible, you get the magisterium, you get the church, you get papal authority, and before you know it, you have what amounts to an Aristotelian scholastic case for the primacy of the Pope over all of the Western world, and then, by extension, the entire world. Again, there's some discussion that can be had as to how successful Descartes was in this exercise, but it cannot be doubted that Descartes, engaging in this scholastic exercise, managed to successfully doubt everything by taking account of the fact that he had been mistaken about facts in the past and that he had had sense experiences that did not comport to reality. He would remember dreams as if they were fact. He would see a stick that appeared bent when you put it in a glass of water and would return to appearing straight when you removed it from the glass of water. You know, basic optical illusions that astound children the world over to this day. And by, by eliminating anything that he can doubt, he gets to the point that he even doubts his own existence right? What if I don't exist? Anybody who's gotten sufficiently high at some point in their past has probably had this conversation with themselves or with whoever was coaching them through their bad trip. In the case of Descartes, he ultimately came to doubt himself to the point that the only thing that he could establish was that there was a thing that was doubting its own existence. There was a thing that was experiencing the whole discussion that was taking place ostensibly in his mind during his meditations. And that's where he gets the cogito, right? If there's something that is thinking about whether or not it exists, it must necessarily exist in order to be able to think about its existence. And a few short steps later, he manages to shoehorn the existence of God into his argument. And then by using God, he can get everything else in the universe because it's just that easy, right? It's just like programming. Import God, everything else just pans out, right? <laughs> now, Descartes is important, though, because as simple as that argument may be, it began this entire Cartesian exercise in philosophy in the Western world where before someone could take for granted their sense experiences, they could take for granted their own existence, they could take for granted different mathematical arguments, different logical arguments that had been made in the past, they could take for granted Aristotelian substances or forms, or the existence of Thomas Aquinas's works or anything like that. Descartes removed that option from anyone. Because scholasticism was so popular, and because Descartes then was so popular with the scholastics, the philosophical exercise imploded into one of constant perennial doubt of everything. From then on, any philosopher that would want to be taken seriously in scholastic circles, which would be any of the academics, any of the um, in institutions of higher learning throughout Europe and America later on um, would have to kowtow to this 
doubt and would have to first prove their own existence, then prove the existence of the things of which they're talking about, and then prove that they're talking about them cogently. And so it should be no surprise that a lot of philosophers never got outside of their own head, since experience is, by and large, unreliable. How many times have you misheard somebody speaking? How many times have you seen something that wasn't there? How many times have you had a dream and then thought it was fact, or had a fact and thought it was a dream? I mean, I don't know about most people, but I know I myself have a very unreliable narrative as to my past. Even this morning, I'm not sure what I had for breakfast. I think it was some delicious gluten-free muffins that my wife made, but I'm not certain if that was this week or last week on Sunday. Anyway. My own self-doubts aside, another individual that picked up that Cartesian exercise is none other than one Immanuel Kant. He was born a couple centuries later. He, he was born in 1724 and did most of his work in the later half of the 18th century. Immanuel Kant introduced a whole new set of problems, kind of doubling down on the Cartesian experience where Descartes would doubt himself and then subsequently prove his own existence through what amounts to introspection and the realization of the necessity of a existent thing that is thinking, Immanuel Kant managed to come up with his own variation of the cogito and then ran into problems when he got to sense experience. Because ultimately, if my brain is an organ that's just experiencing the nerve inputs, the stimuli that go to the brain, then there's an intermediary step between any known thing and the knower. If my brain is formulating the thoughts and the knowledge and doing all the stuff that the mind does, if we're going to say that the mind is what the brain does, then my mind is not grasping the object before me. The microphone right in front of my face is, is not the same thing that exists in my head. Where Aristotle's going to say, you see the animal and now the animal lives in your head, or at least an exact facsimile of the animal lives in your head. Kant is going to say, well, when you have the sense experience of an animal, you then formulate an idea around the sense experience within your mind. This is what he called the phenomenal realm. The word phenomenal will come up quite a lot, most likely, in the next episode, so you might want to pay attention the few times that I use it here. Phenomenology is a lot like epistemology. Phenomenology is just the study of what we experience and how we experience it. So what I feel and how I feel it, as opposed to what I know and how I know it. So in the, in the phenomenal realm, then, we can create all sorts of ideas about our experiences and try to put together a cogent narrative whereby we can get desired outcomes. If I have the experience of being hungry and then later have the experience of eating and then have a later experience of having that hunger assuaged temporarily, then I can reasonably expect that every time I have these different sense inputs, I ought to engage in certain actions in order to alleviate discomfort. Now, where are these sense inputs coming from? Well, he's going to say the senses, right? He's going to say your skin and your eyes and your mouth and your ears, etc. But then what are you seeing? What are you tasting? What are you feeling? Well, you're, you're not directly interacting with, but you are interacting with the noumenal realm, which is a big fancy word, N-E-O-U-M-E-N-A-L, I think. If that's not right, I'll go back and edit it. 
of the noumenal realm. And in the noumenal realm, we're, we're talking about something that the human mind cannot immediately grasp because there's always that intermediary field of logic and reason, as well as the actual physical senses that our body produces. So what he talks about is the thing in itself. If there's a microphone in front of me, which I'm assuming there is, he's going to say that there is a microphone that exists in the noumenal realm. It's a real microphone. It's really sitting there. It's really doing all the things a microphone does. But all I know of the microphone are these mediated experiences of what may or may not be the microphone. So I can never grasp the microphone itself. I can only ever just form an idea about the possibility of a microphone. So basically, to a pragmatist, Kant is saying a whole bunch of gibberish around the idea that, well, there's a microphone in front of me and I'm going to use it. But to an epistemologist, to a phenomenologist, to a philosopher, somebody, somebody who's more engaged in thinking than doing, somebody who wouldn't necessarily be called a pragmatist, what he's saying is you can never know reality. Reality exists outside of your capacity for reason. This is ultimately what gives rise to Ayn Rand's hatred of Kant. And so, without further ado, we enter Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand was born in 1905. She was a survivor of the Soviet Union and ultimately became a citizen in the United States in the 30s. Ayn Rand has a very storied history. One could get into several biographical narratives surrounding all sorts of interesting quirks that she had, but that's not important to this discussion. This discussion is surrounding Ayn Rand's relationship to Aristotle and her relationship to Kant. Ayn Rand, for all intents and purposes, was an Aristotelian. She may or may not have gone along with that. She was definitely more friendly to Aristotle and Aquinas than she was to literally any other philosopher, but she was very caustic towards most ideas. And so it's difficult to tell if she was ever really a fan of Aristotle so much as just most tolerant of him. But for all intents and purposes, Ayn Rand was an Aristotelian. She was somebody who participated in the Aristotelian exercise. And by extension then, she hated Immanuel Kant with a fiery passion, as were all of her passions from what I can tell. Ayn Rand's main critique of Kant can be found in a number of YouTube videos surrounding different speeches, question and answer sessions that she's had. Uh, there's also several nonfiction works that she's written explicitly about Kant. But ultimately, the, her hang-up with Kant is that he denied the ability to grasp the real world. We were always locked in the phenomenal realm and never able to engage the noumenal realm. Where Aristotle says, well, the world is the world, and when you experience the world, you develop a facsimile of the world, and that's close enough. In that regard, Aristotle's a pragmatist. As a matter of fact, I'd even say that Aristotle was an epistemic realist. He really believed that there was some copy of the animal or the animal itself actually lived in your mind. To a modern mind, it's very difficult to grasp what exactly Aristotle was trying to say, especially given the density of the surviving works of his. However, modern Aristotelians have kind of teased it apart a little bit and allowed a little bit more psychology to enter into the picture. The relationship between these different epistemic frameworks is very important because ultimately these different epistemic frameworks give rise to different ethical frameworks. 
how can one be expected to do the right thing if we can't expect them to know the right thing? Right? So, when we're talking about what we know and how we know it, we're ultimately talking about the building blocks from which we get an ethics or a morality or even just a case for action, right? In the earlier case where I'm talking about the pragmatic approach to Kantianism, where we're going to say, well, we have these different phenomenal experiences of hunger and eating and of having our hunger assuaged, then we're talking also about a Misesian case, a case that you know Ludwig von Mises would come up with in the realm of economics, where he's going to talk about praxeology and about how all human action is directed at the alleviation of a discomfort. And he's going to use a Kantian case, actually, for talking about how one comes to know what is most likely to alleviate the discomforts that one is experiencing. Ayn Rand kind of skipped over that because, again, as an Aristotelian, she just accepted the existence of reality and the ability of the mind to grasp reality in a close enough to real way that we don't need to worry about this distinction between the phenomenal and noumenal realms. So where Kant says you cannot know the real world, you can only know these different phenomenal experiences— and then proceeds to build an entire world that exists in the realm of phenomena, basically the intersubjective world where I have my thoughts and experiences and stuff, and even though I can't really prove that other people exist, I experience that other people exist, and so just as I ought to treat my hunger as real, I ought to treat these other people as real. And if I would want to be treated as an end in myself, I would want to treat others as ends in themselves for their own well-being as well. And so he develops this whole framework where you can't really prove that anybody else exists, but you do have a duty to them. He comes up with things like the categorical imperative, which is basically do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but in a much more complicated narrative framework and a much more severe disposition. So he's going to say, behave in a manner that if everybody else were to treat that behavior as a maxim, the world would be a better place as opposed to a worse place. Now, value is subjective, so it's kind of difficult to tease apart what would make the world a better place or a worse place, but he did attempt to come up with an objective set of rules that's like, this is what would be better, and this is what would be worse, much like a utilitarian would do later after Kant. Kant has duty. You must do these things because they are the right things to do even though we can't know anything about the things that we're doing. <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit complicated and, and kind of self-defeating. As you can tell, I'm doing my best to be charitable towards Kant, but at the same time, there are a great many things about him that I just can't agree with. Of course, I'm doing the same thing towards Ayn Rand. Rand had similar complaints about Kant, especially since uh, Rand had a very libertine disposition towards human action. She insisted that anybody ought to be able to do whatever they want as long as they're behaving rationally. And this is represented by the long, long trail of destroyed relationships between her and literally everybody else in her life and the smoking and the lung cancer and the acerbic personality. And again, this could be victim blaming or something. She is a survivor of the Soviet Union and but regardless of whatever cause for her personality and her disposition, one can not separate her personal life from her libertine disposition in her philosophical work. 
So I, I can kind of, I can take pot shots at, at both parties involved in this discussion, I guess is what I'm trying to show. Now, in, in Rand's case, she's going to take this Aristotelian concept of ideas and the way that you can immediately grasp the world around you and then take it to the next logical step, which is, well, what is virtue, right? In Aristotle's case, he's talking about virtue is what makes you successful in the world of ancient Greece. So you want to be heroic, you want to be courageous, you want to be magnanimous. Basically, you want to be rich and famous and powerful. You want to be Donald Trump but without any sort of uh, negative reputation. <laughs> you want to be Donald Trump without the leftists clawing at your back day in and day out. Now, Ayn Rand kind of changed it up a little bit and said, you know, there's not really necessarily objective virtues outside of just reason itself, rationality, the thing that makes the human animal distinct from all the other savages and animals in the world. And by and large, I actually agree with Ayn Rand on this point. So I hope this primer for the next episode is successful and that we outline the, the, the basic lineage of these ideas where we have Aristotle who kind of starts this exercise, René Descartes who takes the Aristotelian exercise and modifies it in a very unique and powerful way. Immanuel Kant, who continues that Cartesian exercise, and Ayn Rand, who desires to skip over that Cartesian exercise entirely and go back to Aristotle as he was, also drawing heavily on Thomas Aquinas, who is kind of a footnote in this discussion, even though if we were to get into deeper discussions about Ayn Rand, he would become very involved. So I'm going to take the last few minutes of, of this episode, and I'm going to focus on where we're going to go from here. When I was originally commissioned for these two episodes, I had used a term that I often just kind of use to get on objectivists' nerves, but I, I said Kantian objectivism. And we're going to get into what exactly could be considered Kantian objectivism, what role it plays in the philosophical tradition, and ultimately where it goes from here. This whole discussion actually began with just a philosophy checkpoint on Facebook that demanded to know people's most outrageous philosophical opinion, and I was presented with the idea that perception determines reality, or perception is reality, and where we're going from here, of course, is to kind of explore that maxim from the perspective of Rand and Kant, and the possibility of a happy middle ground between the two of them and then my own punchline from there. For now, I want to just point out that, so Aristotle says that your perception is your mind grasping the objects around you, grasping the forms, the shapes, the tastes, the smells, all the different accidents, the, the things that make the object what it is to our senses. Then Descartes is going to tell you that your perception lies to you and that unless you can prove the necessity of the belief in those senses, that those senses are to be doubted to the extent that you could consider them to not exist for all intents and purposes. Kant then takes that case a, a step further and says, even if you can prove that your senses are to be trusted, they can only be trusted in the realm that your senses has produced, in this phenomenal realm which is locked up inside your mind, separate from anything outside of itself. It can point to these things that may or may not exist outside yourself in the noumenal realm, the real realm of reality, but you can never know it. So again, that noumenal realm might as well not exist. And then ultimately Ayn Rand comes on the picture and goes back to Aristotle and says, no, 
objective reality exists. It exists outside of your mind, but you're capable of grasping that reality through a combination of your senses and reason. Her way to deconstruct that Cartesian maxim of doubting your senses to the exclusion of existence is to simply say, well, if you can use reason to demonstrate that your senses are being more or less reliable, then you can depend on them insofar as they are reliable. In other words, if you put the stick in a glass of water and it appears bent and then you take it back out and it appears unbent, you can use reason to determine why your senses are faulty and compensate for that with your mind. Because again, you're not an ape or a savage. Getting a little excited here as we try to wrap things up. So going forward, we're going to dig deeper on these principles and we're going to try to build something out of these fundamental pieces that we've been given. So with that, carpe veritas and have a great week. <laughs>